Welcome to another episode of Film Exploration with Ash Hurry. Today we shall be talking about the 1982 classic remake of The Thing, directed by John Carpenter and starring Kurt Russell, Wilford Brimley and Keith David. A research team in the remote outskirts of Antarctica are tracked down by a mysterious shape-shifting being from another world that can assume the identity and appearances of its victim. The film already creates the enigma of a story we don't know yet, simply from knowing that this film is all taking place in a remote part of this world, where there are no human beings and civilization as we know it doesn't exist. The mysteriousness of knowing there is no police, no law, no hospital or a society makes this the perfect backdrop for a sci-fi movie. I mean, the fact that this could be very, you know, very well be set on Mars or Planet X makes every difference to this film's mystique. Simply put, this sci-fi film is happening in a place that exists in today's world. And the fact that, you know, hardly anyone we know has been there is also, you know, it also convinces us with no effort in accepting whatever the film decides to show us as a possible reality. Now, there isn't many films set in Antarctica or the Arctic, but what these locations express in a movie is how alone we can be on planet Earth, the idea of isolation. I mean, we've just come out of lockdown, and so we've had a little taste of this, but most of these movies, something happens wherever it's a serial killer in the film Whiteout, or vampires in 30 Days of Nights, or an isolation within an isolation in New Alcatraz, or even space creatures battling out in Alien vs. Predator. The key interest in films being set in isolated places is the human survival instinct and how we react. A classic example is The Mist, I think. It's set in a supermarket, and they're all trapped there, and the story isn't about the supernatural beings outside. It's about the people inside and how they begin to turn on each other or to pick sides. And it's very interesting to watch. With The Thing, we have a sci-fi element to it. But the fact of the matter is that this alien can replicate a human being. So the end product isn't too different from what happens in The Mist. And even with aliens in this film, it's all about surviving. And that's the key element of this film and knowing what it is to be human. Again, like The Mist, The Thing, The Creature, whatever The Thing is, it doesn't matter. It's about those 15 human beings and how they react to it and to one another. Now, during lockdown, we have the luxury of technology on our side. We, we, you know, we weren't really deprived of anything. The situation we were in are what astronauts are doing in space stations or scientists researchers are doing in uh, the Arctic or sea captains on their boats. What we went through in lockdown happens all over the world. And when you are denied to go out freely in your surroundings, the survival mode takes over. Your mind starts to, you know, go into, you know, progression mode you want to start learning new things or to be more physical and you you know these are you know these are true because of what's happened during our lockdown and what's happened there was evidence of this people were getting into their exercise routines people were reading more people started baking but this psychological thing this the fundamental thing here is we had to adapt to the situation and we did and that's part of being human and that brings me on nicely to the thing and how they adapt to survive and they physically and literally adapt their bodies to become human to survive. So we have 15 or so people in Antarctica in this movie, and we're really never aware of why they're there in the first place. It's never explained in the movie. In fact, the film goes straight into an issue with the Norwegian chasing the dog, so it jumps straight into it. But I did some research on why they would be there. Now, Antarctica has no indigenous people or permanent residents there at all. There is a thing called the Antarctica Treaty, signed by a number of countries back in the 50s, I think, might have been 60s, which dictates that Antarctica must only be used for peaceful and scientific 
scientific purposes. Now, considering in the film the extensive laboratory equipment that we see and the presence of several doctors in this movie, it's safe to assume that the men are part of some scientific team occupying this base during the Antarctic winter. So most proper scientific researchers, um, or my, most, uh, most scientific research is done during the summer. And then you have this sort of skeleton crew come in for the winter. And it's for like minor research, but mainly it's for just housekeeping. So that's probably what they're doing there. Now, while doing this research, I also found out reasons why they would have weapons. Because in this movie, they have a lot of guns. It's quite common for them to have a lot of weapons, actually, at the facility. There was this one critic who I was reading about. And he obviously didn't do his research and he was going, oh, it's pretty convenient in this film that they have all these guns. But in fact, because of the Cold War paranoia that this film's actually set in, and considering there is actually a Soviet military base in Antarctica for research purposes, which is mentioned in the prequel, it's very common for them to carry weapons, although they would be in a locked cabinet, which they are in this movie. Also, a security force is always tasked with the crew during the winter and the summer, so they would be packing a minigun like a revolver, which is also in this movie, and also for the use of each other as well, mainly for people having mental breakdowns or trying to harm themselves or even become dangerous, which is completely and definitely plausible, especially in a very remote place like Antarctica. So the authenticity of the weapons are fine in this movie. And it's actually a tradition in Antarctica now to watch this movie during the first night there. I read somewhere from new scientists saying that British Antarctic research stations would bless the newbies or interns by showing this film for them on the first night. And it's also the film that would be on in the background during their mid-feast celebrations, which is held every year in Antarctica on June 21st. So the thing, I think in the original John Campbell short story, um, which is what the film is based on, they're there to study and perform experiments regarding the dynamics and magnet, uh, magnetics and magnetisms of sub-zero conditions, although they never explain that in the movie at all. But I should mention, or already have mentioned, that The Thing is a remake of the 1951 movie The Thing from Another World. And that movie was adapted from a short story called Who Goes There, written by John Campbell. Now, the movie and the short story don't really have anything in common because... The UFO, uh, the only thing they really have in common is the UFO crashes near a research center in a frozen wilderness, and that's it. In fact, the 1951 movie is set in the Arctic, not the, not Antarctica, so that's a completely different thing, but it's pretty much the same thing. It's a frozen environment. And there's an argument that the short story written by John Campbell, who goes there, might have even been influenced by another short story called At the Mountain's Madness by H.P. Lovecraft, which was published two years prior. And both of these stories have the discovery of an alien during a research expedition in a cold, wintry backdrop. And they both they both even have the shape-shifting element of the aliens in their story. And to add more fuel to the fire to both of these stories, there was a story ten years prior to both of them called The Thing in the Amongst and Tent, which has a similar story. And even before that, there were works of Edgar Allan Poe's story, and he had a very identical story. So it's a massive game of Chinese whispers here, but I think we're in agreement when I say that John Carpenter's, John Carpenter's one is the one that holds supreme. Now, the story has been quite popular with this sort of alien needing a human host to survive scenario. I mean, John Wyndham, the author who wrote, I think... Near enough the same time as the first thing movie came out in the 50s, he wrote um, Village of the Dam, which is about a village that wakes up one morning and finds that all the women are now pregnant. And then when they give birth, we later find out that these kids, that they look normal on the exterior, but they're actually um, aliens from another world. 
And the same author wrote Day of the Triffids, which is about a comet blinding, literally blinding the entire population and having this man-eating plant attack us, which is a bit different, but on the same alien theme. In fact, the original Thing movie, the special effects were so bad in the 50s that they used this plant man creature like in day of the triffids as the alien in the thing and also in the same decade jack finney's original story of invasion of the body snatchers was made into a film in the 50s and it was later remade in the 70s i mean this one is a little more like the thing where a small town doctor learns that the population of his community is being replaced by emotionless alien duplicates and this sort of story has been you know is is kept going in films like invasion with daniel craig uh the world's end with simon pegg and even in some aspects the marvel anti-hero in venom so the story is sort of caught on and continued to make its way through time in hollywood i read a really cool thing actually this is a bit geeky but there's a book called frozen hell which turned out to be a longer version of the original short story who goes there the movie that inspired the thing and it was discovered by another author during his research on John Campbell and he found the book and it was published I think last year which is actually really awesome so if you want to read the long version of the original short story it's called Frozen Hell by John Campbell I think you can order on Amazon or maybe a local Waterstones maybe okay so I think I've waffled enough about the history of the movie so let's talk about it now I said earlier that there's no question that film that this one triumphs over the rest of the remakes and short stories however this wasn't the case when it came out no it wasn't I mean this movie opened the exact same day as Blade Runner but that actually had nothing to do with the failure of this movie in fact both Blade Runner and The Thing were both massive failures, but both became love cult classic later, uh, movies later on. I mean, they were also both based on a novel, as we've both established with The Thing. When it came out, oh my god, people slammed it. Critics hated it. It was so gory. Remember, this film was said to be the, the benchmark of special effects. And, you know, they were done so well. In fact, they were done too well. They were done way too well, if that's ever even such a thing. People just couldn't take it. It was a total gore fest, and people reacted badly. I mean, the guy who did the special makeups for this movie was only 22 at the time, and they took a big chance in hiring him, but he fundamentally changed Hollywood, and he is now a really established name. I think his name's Rob Bottin, if you're into your special effects um, uh, career or jobs or trivia. But people, you know, weren't ready for this movie, and John Carpenter had no idea. The 70s had this bleak era with films like Taxi Driver and Godfather, and the 80s was meant to be this happy-go-lucky decade with films like The Goonies and E.T. coming out, but The Thing just wasn't what anyone expected. It was out of place in the 80s. John Carpenter even said that this is his favourite movie of his own, and he stands by that. But at the time, he took the really bad press, you know, he took it really badly. I mean, the reception was so cold. Even the director of the original movie who goes there was saying this is awful if you want blood go to a slaughterhouse is exactly what he said the studios cancelled the multi-picture deal they had agreed with john carpenter he was losing jobs he wasn't getting hired it wasn't a great time for him only until a year after did this film really pick up again on home videos much like his later film big trouble little china also with kurt russell this film is now considered to be one of the greatest sci-fi films ever done it's ranked 12th in entertainment weekly a uh, weekly is a scary film of all time it's amazing how it picked up traction after the poor reception it got this is why it's so important to really watch a film and to be honest sometimes a film is made to suit sometimes a film is just made way too soon for its generation but the good thing is depending on how you look at it 
you know, films always are going to outlive us. And there will probably be a generation that will love films that we hate. And critics will turn their comments. People did turn their comments of this film. And people adjusted to the gore. And people really tuned in and admitted to themselves that they were wrong and realized that this John Carpenter movie was, you know, he created a classic. He said that he loved the idea of sort of creating a monster where the creature wasn't obviously played by a man in a suit. Something he said that really bothered him when he was watching Alien. He enjoyed the premise of the story that these people are basically on a suicide mission here. That they can't leave this place. They can't leave knowing that they're going to infect the whole world. That they know they have to stay behind because of fear of contamination to the world. He loved that sort of camaraderie and bravery of these men. Another thing that really drove this movie or cemented its uh, place in history is the music. The beautiful score by Ennio Morricone. I mean, the film's budget was ridiculous at the time. I mean, a lot was spent on Ennio and the musical score. The film's budget was 15 million at the time, which was massive for a horror movie. If you look at John Carpenter's previous horror movies, like Friday the 13th, that was only like 700k, and Halloween was not even. I think it was only 400k. It wasn't even over half a million. But the, so the film, the thing had immense backing from the studios and mainly special effects. You know, I mean, they were the sort of key elements to that budget. But like I said, the music was phenomenal. In fact, John Carpenter usually does the music for his own movies. I mean, it's a tradition that he scores his own movies. But for this one, I think this is the only one to date when this movie came out that he chose to have a composer do it. It's funny because the movie took a beating when it came out and so did the music. I mean, Ennio's score for this movie was nominated for a Razzie for worst score that year. However, now... The score for this movie is now up there with like John Williams' Jurassic Park as one of the greats of all time in cinematic history. And if you want to, if you want true justice and pure coincidence, then listen to this because this is just me geeking out. So Ennio had unused material for the thing lying around because he didn't use all of it for the thing. And Tarantino was working on that Hateful Eight, and it was the first time Tarantino used a composer, much like John Carpenter did with Ennio. Um, because like uh, John Carpenter, Tarantino uses his own music. Or in Tarantino's cases, he uses musical tracks. But for Hateful Eight, he broke tradition. He broke um, tradition and he used Ennio to score the movie. Remember, I said he was nominated for a Razzie for worst score, which is like the opposite of the Oscars. Well, for the Hateful Eight, he won an Oscar for best score for the Hateful Eight. I think it was his first ever Oscar. And he was like, he was like pushing 80 at the time. Which I think is a great story and true justice for both films. And, you know, it's it's amazing that he managed, you know, get recognition for the score of, you know, The Hateful Eight, which was technically the score for The Thing. And both films are set in an isolated place, surrounded by snow. So you can see why the music was used, considering it had the same environment and cold backdrop. And also, both films had Kurt Russell in it, so you got to love these little connections in Hollywood. So, yeah, the music is iconic. It really emphasizes this chilling atmosphere that these men are all in. It's interesting because they're all men, because all 15 cast members are male in this movie. There isn't one female character in this movie besides the, I think, the voice of the computer, which uh, when Mac is playing chess. There was originally a female who was originally cast in this movie, but I think she was pregnant at the time, so they... Um, they couldn't re, they had to recast her, and I think, um, it was a guy who took over the role. Well, it was a guy who took over the role. In the original, though, there are actually two females in the crew, and in the 2011 remake, or should I say prequel, the main, uh, the main protagonist is female, so it's sort of a bit of justice to it. So the movie opens with this chilling music and the iconic title, title sequence of The Thing. John Carpenter is trying to replicate the appearance of the original Howard Hawks movie here, um, so he doesn't try to change the font, it's sort of the same sort of, um, 
uh, the the writing on the screen. And it's kind of symbolic, as the theme is all about replicating as well. And also, if you notice that this film, funded by Universal, doesn't open up with the Universal logo, which is actually really rare for a movie. It was done because the movie opens up with a flying saucer, or it originally did, and they didn't want to confuse that with the UFO, with the logo, which is quite a similar shape. So something like... Uh, I think it was something like that, which is why they chose to remove the logo. I think... The only other films that have done that, that have managed to remove the Universal logo, was the Blues Brothers and Spielberg's 1941. I'm not sure why, but I read that's um, the only three films that didn't have the Universal logo at the start of the movie. So we have Kurt Russell, you know, frequent collaborator of George uh, John Carpenter. Those two are like BFFs. It took Kurt Russell a year to grow his famous beard for Mac. And also, quite interestingly, his character's called McReady, Mac for short. And there's another character called Windows. I think it's a nickname in the movie because he wears glasses. And this film came out in 1982, so it's pure chance that Mac and Windows have this sort of rivalry in this film, foreshadowing the famous Apple and Microsoft tech rivalry later on, years later on, which is kind of cool. And the advert was directed by Ridley Scott, the Macintosh advert, which who directed the Aliens film. So that's another connection. Alien film, not Aliens. So Kurt Russell is the main guy here. He's actually the helicopter pilot in the movie. This is sort of a backstory about him. There's a backstory about him flying in Vietnam, but it didn't make the cut. Some backstory about him killing his men by accident, hence why he's in Antarctica away from the world. So if you pay attention to the opening scene, you can see the foreshadowing of things to happen. I mean, Max... I think it's his opening line when he says trust is a tough thing to come by these days, which I think is a great line. And it's basically one of the key elements in this movie because we have no idea who's alien and who's human. I mentioned earlier he was playing chess on his computer and he pours a drink on it and crashes the PC because he's losing the chess game, which again kind of foreshadows what he does in the movie. He burns the place down to kill the other beings and notice at the end of the very famous scene with Childs where only two remain, him and Childs, and we don't know who's human and who's alien. And he offers him a drink at the end. And if we go by what he does with the computer, we have to assume he's human and Childs is the alien. Now, another theory is that Mac puts petrol in the drink and gives it to Childs. Now, if Childs doesn't react to it, then he knows he's an alien, which he doesn't, but it's just a theory. There are many theories with the ending on who the real alien here is, but we never find out. We just end with them both sitting there staring at each other. John Carpenter has been asked this many times, and he's given some light to it, but he's basically said it's up to your own interpretation, although he leans more to the idea that they're both human, and the theme here is how to trust each other, even though they've just witnessed something that you know will you know break them as a as a friendship or as a species even now if you understand Norwegian, the whole movie is you know, ruined for you. Well, not ruined, but you know what happens. Right at the start, when the Norwegian is chasing dog, he says, get the hell out of here. That's not a dog. It's some sort of thing. It's imitating a dog. It, it isn't real. Get away, you idiots. Then he gets shot and he pulls a weapon. And that's where the 2011 movie ends. So it acts as sort of a prequel to the 1982 version. It's not bad. It's worth watching. But the 1982 version still holds highest for me. But with the ending, yeah, I mean, I won't spoil it with what I think. I think it doesn't really matter. Like, it doesn't matter what's in a briefcase in Pulp Fiction. It's there to pull on your curiosity threads. It doesn't matter now. I mean, the point is, no matter who it is, they're not getting out of Antarctica. And Kurt Russell, being a helicopter pilot, will sacrifice his life to keep this virus contained. He's not going to fly Childs out of there, even if he is human. 
I mean, the film, it represents a time where film goes against what others were doing. John Carpenter went beyond what he knew in terms of horrors. He learnt from The Fog and Halloween, and he used a young special effects artist and created what I think is a masterpiece in the sci-fi genre. If you haven't seen this movie, I would suggest watching it at night with the curtains drawn on a windy and dark night with a little lit candle in the background and just enjoy the experience of this movie. It's one everyone should experience, and the themes in this movie are very obvious to observe, and it's done in this sci-fi backdrop of this thing from another world well that's all i have time for with the thing please if you haven't seen it give it a go or watch the original one or grab the short story or the newly discovered long version that was published last year or do all of them in chronological order and have a real raw experience of the thing anyways i'm on instagram film exploration ah all lowercase or one word and thank you for listening to my podcast on the film uh, on the thing and this is ash Hari with film exploration thank you very much